Tonight, we're going to open up Jonah 3 together, and we're just going to walk through the chapter in verse-by-verse form. But before I get into it, I want to share a little bit of a little piece of our family. So on Friday nights, our family likes to have movie nights, and some of you might also do that. If you come to our house, if we don't have anything on the calendar, every Friday night we are in our living room watching a movie and eating pizza or breakfast, depending on the grocery budget at that point. (laughs) Pancakes are cheaper than um, pizza. But every week we get to take turns on who's going to choose the movie for that night because we don't like to have a fight. But one of the movies that everyone agrees upon, it doesn't matter who's choosing the movie for that night, everyone agrees upon this movie, and this movie is Mary Poppins Returns. By show of hands, I'm seeing a thumbs up. Who has seen it? Mary Poppins Returns. Okay, so half of you are going to think I'm not crazy, half of you are going to think I'm crazy. But this movie is a great movie. I'm not going to spoil anything. I will tell you it's a great movie. You should watch it. Uh, Basically, Mary Poppins returns to adult Michael and Jane, and she comes to nanny Michael's kids. So in the movie, part of the movie, Mary Poppins takes Michael's kids to visit Mary Poppins' cousin named Topsy. Now, if you've seen the movie, you instantly know who Topsy is. Topsy is a wonderful character. She's kind of eclectic. She's one of my favorite actresses, Meryl Streep. And she has a problem. And Mary Poppins explains her problem. Her problem is every second Wednesday of the month, everything in her house turns turtle. And she sings this wonderful song called Turning Turtle, which I will not sing for you. (laughs) Naomi tried to convince me to sing it, but I'm not going to sing it for you. So everything turns turtle, which I didn't know until I started looking into this song because I love this fun song. It gets stuck in your head really easily. That's an old phrase for turning upside down, things turning over or capsized. So... You're asking, why is she sharing this? Because as I'm reading Jonah and as I was studying Jonah, I could not get this song out of my head. Because Jonah is a book that everything is turned upside down. Everything is turned turtle when you read it. For instance, if, you just, if we just walk through the book of Jonah, and I'm just going to point out a few things just to make the point here. The book is a Book of Prophecy, which normally a book of prophecy is God's word to his people, but this book is actually about the prophet himself. This book also is the prophet who should have been giving God's word to his people and obeying God's word. He's actually running from God's word and not obeying God himself. We have the pagan sailors, we saw this in chapter 1, who when they hear and when they encounter the storm, they call out on God before the prophet himself. The pagans themselves also showed loving kindness and they cared more about the well-being of others. 
before the prophet himself. You get my picture. There's all this flip-flopping going on, turning turtle. The, the craziness of even a fish swallowing Jonah up and acting like a living submarine taking him to shore is crazy in and of itself. And we saw on day one of the workbook that the book itself is written as a mirror image of itself. And that's not an accident. When authors do this in the Bible, it is on purpose because they're trying to make a point. And the point is to narrow our focus in on something that they want to tell us. So when you see this, you have to take note of these things. So all this book and there's more. You could go through and just try to find all the things that are turned upside down and just weird about this book. But this whole book is everything is turned. And in chapter 3, finally we're going to see things start to kind of turn right side up again. So let's open up to Jonah 3, if you're not already there. And tonight we're going to talk about God's mercy, God's love, and how God is a promise keeper. So let's look at Jonah 3. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, and I'm going to pause there, just the first verse, think about the magnitude and the mercy of that sentence. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God actually spoke to Jonah again. God in his mercy didn't just save Jonah and bring him to shore and save his life. God actually speaks to him again. And when you just think about that, that is a merciful God. Because Jonah, this prophet, rebelled against God and ran as far as he could. And yet God still saved his life. That's mercy first and foremost. And then he talks to him again. And he gives him this commission again because he's a merciful God. And he says... He starts off with the same word he started in chapter 1. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So this time he's saying, go to Nineveh and tell them the message I'm going to give you. Don't worry about what you're going to have to say. Just go and obey. So God is telling Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh and obey me. And Jonah does this time. But before Jonah could finally go to Nineveh, just like Lynette said last week, Jonah had to learn a hard lesson. Jonah learned the lesson of mercy and of how merciful our God is before he could take that message to Nineveh itself and share God's mercy with them. And so often in our life, we go through seasons where we have to learn something ourselves before we can turn around and share it with other people. And so Jonah had to go through this and learn the mercy of God before he could take God's mercy to Nineveh. So God mercifully speaks to Jonah, and Jonah goes, and it says that he goes to this exceedingly great city that's three days' journey in breath. Verse 4, it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Period. 
I was kind of like, what? That's it? Like, the more I studied it, I'm like, no, there, there has to be more. There really has to be more. I have a lot of questions here. I want to know, and we talked about this at our group, my questions go on and on, because the more I read this, the more I kind of got annoyed at Jonah. Like, really? That's all you say? I want to know, did he go further into the city? Like, did he just start his message one day journey in? Did he say that one sentence, like, multiple times all throughout the city? Or did he say more, and this is just, like, a really short paraphrase? Or did he, I want to know, did he say it, like, boldly and proclaim the mercy of God to the people? Or did he just, like, mumble this one sentence in a corner and just be like, well, I obeyed? You know, like, what... What happened here? Because if this is all we have, if this is all Jonah said, I guarantee you this is probably the worst evangelistic sermon in the history that we have. If not history, maybe the Bible. I'll give it that. It's, it is the worst evangelistic sermon but we don't know the answers to those questions. And sometimes it's kind of fun to play that game when you read the Bible and just kind of just dream a little bit and try to think about how this would play out. But we don't know the answers because it's not pertinent to the main point of God's word in Jonah. Because it's not the giftedness of the preacher or the messenger himself. It's the message that they're bringing that's important. I'm going to say that again. It's not the giftedness of the preacher or messenger, but the great message they have. That's what's important. Look back at the language here that it says in verse 4 and 5. It says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, which overthrown is actually a word that means to be overturned. There's our turning again capsized or destroyed. So get that language in your mind as you're reading it. So 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed Jonah? No, it says the people of Nineveh believed God because Jonah walked into the city with God's words and proclaimed God's words, and the people believed God, not Jonah. It's the gospel that saves it's the good news that saves. It's not the messenger that brings it. And we have to remember that because so often we get caught up on who's sharing the message rather than what the message itself is, right? Um, this is just a short tangent. Some of us might even struggle with maybe the person who led you to the Lord is no longer walking with the Lord. And what do you do with that? That's hard. And to rest in the fact that you are saved by Jesus Christ and not by that person who has turned from the Lord. Or maybe, maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we feel deficient and we feel like we can't share the gospel. I'm not good at that. I don't know how to share it. I don't know it well enough. I'm not outgoing. But we have to rest in the fact that Jonah 2.9 says salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God's work to bring salvation to people. It's not how good we are at sharing it. Now, we should practice sharing the gospel, yes, but don't feel the weight 
on your own shoulders to bring that salvation to those around you. Because we can trust in the work of the Lord, that it is the Lord, it is the Holy Spirit who brings dead souls to life. And Jonah is walking proof, right? He came in and he said the shortest message and the people repented. But why should we open our mouths? Why is it important that we open our mouths? I was convicted of this as I studied this, that I don't think I open my mouth enough because I honestly don't take the wrath of God seriously. Because God's wrath and his judgment is as real as his great love and his great mercy. And I so often want to just think about love and mercy and yet I forget about the wrath and judgment But if I really thought of it and really thought it was a real thing, I would have so much more urgency to tell the people that I love and to tell them that there is a loving God waiting for you if you run to him. But we take his wrath just kind of like, "Eh, it's not a serious thing. And we also, if you're like me, I was sharing with our group here, I have this category in my mind, and it sounds really bad even saying it out loud, but I have this category in my mind of the probably nevers. And I don't know if you have these in your mind, but it might be the person that you other, like we talked about in the first week, or it could be someone who's just so antagonistic towards the gospel or so against the way that you live that you just think they will probably never come to know the Lord So I'm going to stop praying for them. I'm going to stop sharing the gospel. I'm just going to think that God couldn't do that. But may we never stop praying for those people. May we never stop sharing the gospel because nothing is impossible for God. God is able to save those who are, we think, the farthest from that. And we see that here because Jonah's other, or Jonah's probably never, was the Ninevites, right? And he had to have been the most shocked when he opened his mouth and they all repented. Because it says in verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believe God and they call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. From the greatest, who's the king, who we see he issues this decree for the land to fast, all the way down to the least. And what a beautiful picture that is of the gospel. It's from the greatest to the least. We saw in the first week of Jonah that God cares for all. We saw last week that salvation belongs to the Lord. And this week we're seeing that God's mercy and salvation are all-encompassing, from the greatest to the least. We see this all throughout scripture. This isn't just in Jonah. We know that God is a loving, merciful God for all people. And if you turn to Galatians 3, this is a New Testament example. Uh, Galatians was written by Paul, an apostle sent to mainly Gentiles, and he wrote the book of Galatians. In verse 26, Galatians 3:26, it says this, For in Christ, 
You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Did you see this language? They're in Christ, therefore there's no distinction. If we put on Christ, God sees Christ himself and he doesn't see us. So when he sees Christ, there is no distinction between anyone. And Paul makes the list Jew or Greek, slave or free. And we might say God's love is all-encompassing and in our day, rather than slave or free, Jew or Gentile, we might say male or female, adult or child, black or white, social status, it doesn't matter, healthy or struggling, health, vaccinated or unvaccinated, Democrat or Republican, the list could go on and on. The lines that we draw in our culture God does not draw those lines. His mercy is over all. He is all-encompassing and loves all, and his mercy goes to all. And we must desire for all to be saved, too. Our heart must be for all people to come to know Christ. In um, 1 Timothy 2.3, it says this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. If God cares for all and wants all to know him, we should too. And if in heaven Heaven's going to look like all races, all nations, all colors and languages. We should have a heart for that also. And that's why we share the gospel with our friends, with our families. We share the gospel with our neighbors and all the way to the nations. We should have a heart for that and a love for that because God does. So the greatest to the least repent and how does God respond? We see God's response here in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relents from sending this disaster. He said, in 40 days, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed, right? Right? So this is our last point of the night, that God is a promise keeper. He keeps his word. He said that he would relent from sending disaster if they would repent, and he did that. He was merciful. So what is mercy? Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That really set in for me because God had every right to utterly destroy the Ninevites for their violence and their evil actions. He could have done that, 
But yet he sent Jonah in his mercy to warn the Ninevites, and their hearts were softened towards him, and they repented. God isn't like some of our friends who we can't count on because I don't know if you have anybody that you know of like this where you say, hey, can you do this for me? Yeah, 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 I'll do it. And then they don't do it. Or you're like, hey, we're going to meet at this time, and they show up an hour later. Or you ask someone to do it, and they do like part of it. That's frustrating. Why is it so frustrating? Because you can't trust them. But we can trust our God because he always follows through with what he says. And we see this right here, that God said, if you repent, I will relent. The Ninevites repented. And what is repenting? I don't know if I truly understand the word repentance, and I'm still working on understanding it. But a working definition would be to repent is to feel regret or contrition for one's actions and turn from those actions. So it's feeling what you've done is wrong, knowing what you've done is wrong, and turning from those actions. It's a both and, because if you separate those, it's not repentance. So they literally turn from their actions. Now, I have a child when they were younger, and I'm not going to say their name, who used to say, I'm sorry, if you catch them in, you know, what they're doing is wrong, I'm sorry, and then two minutes later, what do you find them doing? The same exact thing. That's not repentance. And sometimes we act like that, right? We go to connection group on a normal night and we say, oh my goodness, ladies, I've got to confess this. I really struggled with this this week. I've confessed it to the Lord and I'm confessing it to you tonight. And then the very next week, what happens? You come back and say the same exact thing. And I'm not saying, I don't want you to hear me say at all that we should be perfect people, because that is not the gospel either. But I think that that happens, and I'm saying I'm included too. I think that that happens because, like I said, we have a soft view of God's wrath, therefore we have a soft view of repentance. Because if we truly hated our sin, we would turn and stop doing it, right? So when we confess our sin, we should confess it and stop doing that. And the only way we can do that is by hating our sin. And this, this is something just a couple weeks ago, Jake and I were talking about this, and I had confessed this sin to him, and he said, you've already confessed this to me before. You just don't hate your sin. Man, that was hard to hear, but I needed to hear that. Because I didn't take my sin seriously. I was just thinking God's grace is going to cover it and that's all I need. But do I really hate my sin? Do we stop and turn from our sin? Whatever the sin is. It could be gossip or slander. It could be the idolatry of body image. It could be sexual impurity. And we could talk about that all night, that it is not just a male issue for sexual impurity. Women struggle with that too, and that is a sin that we need to confess and turn from also. 
It could be the sin of self-reliance or pride. Whatever it is, may we hate our sin and turn from it and repent. And when we turn from our sin and confess it, God's wrath just doesn't disappear, right? We have to remember that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on our behalf because God is a loving God. And he poured that wrath out on his own son so that we would be forgiven. The wages of sin are death, and our wages of sin were put on Jesus himself. So remember at the beginning when we talked about turning turtle and the song. So what happens when there's a turtle turned upside down? He can't move. He's helpless. He can't turn himself over. The only thing that can turn him over is if something outside of himself comes and picks him up and turns him over, right? And that's, that's us. We can't turn our hearts towards softening towards God. We need the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts towards him. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, it is the Holy Spirit that grants us repentance and knowledge in him. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. Picture the Holy Spirit just taking us and turning us back over onto our feet or taking our hearts and melting it and warming it towards him again. I love Romans 8.13. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's the Spirit's strength that helps us put to death the deeds of the body. So tonight, as we look at the repentance of the Ninevites, my prayer is that our hearts would be turned to repent of our own sin, to look inward and say, God, what do I need to repent of? And know that we're not coming towards a harsh, wrathful God. We're coming towards a God that is so merciful and so loving and waiting to receive us with arms open wide. So let's pray. God, thank you that you are a merciful God. Thank you that we can come to you and repent. Help us to hate our sin, to see sin like you see it, and to know that just like in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says you are, slow, you are not slow in keeping your promises, God. You want everyone to come to repentance. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Do the work that only you, Holy Spirit, can do. Turn our hearts towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.